scripture reading this morning is 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we begin at verse 11, read through to verse 22. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and at verse 11 through 22. This is God's word, listen. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locust to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever." My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I've commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel." But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you. And this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted... Everyone passing by will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. Well, again, if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We are in the middle of a sermon series where we are looking more closely at Bible verses that are often misunderstood and therefore misused and misapplied. And I'm calling this series, You Keep Using That Verse, I Do Not Think It Means What You Think It Means. And so our goal through this series is largely corrective. We begin by looking at a a verse that is often misused, and we want to see how it's misused and maybe even why. But we want to understand the verse correctly. It's God's word after all. We want to receive it and to understand it and to accept it and to have a proper understanding of it as God intended for us to shape the way we live as disciples of Jesus. And so, to boldly go where pastors probably shouldn't go, 
But with an election on the horizon, I wanted to tackle just a few verses you might hear from politicians. Now, I am acutely aware, acutely aware I'm taking some risks here. I know you all well enough to know that you all love and follow the same Lord Jesus Christ, but you don't all vote or you don't all vote the same way. And I want to make it very clear, very clear. If I have to say this a few times, I will at the outset what I am and what I am not going to be doing here. First, I intend to be an equal opportunity observer. You see, in a land of two dominant parties, I hope it's no surprise to any of you to hear me say that representatives of both parties use and misuse Scripture for their advantage. And I know we sometimes need to distinguish between a candidate's own position and that of one or another of their groups of supporters, especially when that group of supporters represents another, or a rather extreme view. I don't mean that in dangerous view, but a view that's on the periphery. So it is not my position, nor my desire, to recommend one party or one candidate over another, since not only is that illegal, but it would also be a misuse of Scripture and its application to you, and it would be contrary to your Christian freedom to vote or not as you will. So, for example, even in the most egregious cases of the misuse of Scripture, there might be other reasons for which you might want to vote for a candidate. Or just because a candidate uses a Scripture verse correctly, you may still have reasons not to vote for her if you vote at all. And finally, it is certainly not my position to say, and I don't want to hear any of you say that I say, that any one candidate in their use or misuse of a scripture text must mean they are or are not a Christian. All right, with all that said, let's dive in and let's dive in to the deep end because there's probably no scripture text more misused on a campaign trail than 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. As we unpack this a little, I will want us first to look at the context because in every case where scripture is misused, we go off the rails by forgetting the context. Second, we'll look at the if clause in this verse. And third, we'll look at the then clause in the verse. So the context and the if clause and then the then clause. Well, the context here we see from verse 11, Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. He had built his glorious temple and his glorious palace. 
These are the highlights of Solomon's reign. Remember, David had conquered all the enemies and, and had displaced them and had provided secure, safe, expanded boundaries and had accumulated great wealth following his victories. And that wealth Solomon uses and others he gains himself to build this spectacular temple for the Lord and this glorious palace. And we find out in a few verses or a few chapters earlier that as Solomon had finished his house and as he, or the, the temple, as he dedicates the temple, the Lord comes amazingly and settles in. The Lord has moved in to his house. Back in chapter 6, the, the presence of the Lord in the house and in that presence, Solomon prays. And he prays with a language exalting the Lord, exalting his majesty, his glory, his creative ability, his covenant faithfulness, his immensity, his grandeur, and now his imminence, his nearness to his people. You see, Solomon, as we, should be amazed that this great, glorious Lord would take up residence in this location in the middle of his people on the mountain, in the temple, in the most holy place. And so Solomon prays. And he prays, and he prays that the Lord would hear and answer his prayers. And he prays that the Lord would hear the prayers of the people as they offered them up throughout subsequent generations, as they gathered in this place to offer him their prayers, their praises. And he prays the Lord would grant justice and forgiveness and restoration. We won't take the time now, you could on your own, but his prayer, Solomon's prayer in chapter 6, is filled with if-then clauses. If a man sins against his neighbor and then swears an oath and then comes and prays, then hear him. If your people are defeated in battle and they pray, then hear them. If there is no rain on account of their sin and they turn and pray, then forgive them and grant rain. If there is a famine or crop failure or insect or disease, and they pray, then hear them and heal them and restore the land. And Solomon leads the people in praise as king, but he prays as prophet the Lord's own words back to him. In other words, he's, his prayer is couched in the language of covenant blessings and curses. All of the problems for which God's people might pray, are sent by God as punishment or correction for their sin. And when they pray, there's a recognition of sin and a repentance for it and a calling out to the Lord for only He can restore. And then God's promises are that when they do that, He will restore, He will heal. So Solomon prays the Lord's own words filled uh, in the book of Deuteronomy especially, prays them back to the Lord. The Lord hears him. And now the 
remarkable moment happens as Solomon finishes the house, as, he sum- as we have the summary of this, we have the Lord again coming to Solomon to answer him. He appears to Solomon and he answers him. First, he describes what he has done. He describes what he will do. He then lays out two possible scenarios for Solomon and subsequent kings as they lead God's people. As always, there are two paths to live. And again, in keeping with his practice and establishing this relationship with Israel, he gives these two paths and says there are going to be two consequences depending on which path. And he says, if you do this, I will do that. If you do that, then I will do this. Solomon, I have heard your prayer. I've consecrated this house. I have put my name on it. My eyes and my heart will be there, verses of 15 and 16. But as for you, verse 17, if you do this, then I will do that. If you walk before me as David did, with integrity of heart, with obedience to everything I've told you, then I will establish your throne forever. And then the Lord goes on and describes the other path, a path of disobedience. And it's the same kinds of promises he'd given in the Garden of Eden. Here in verse 6, if you, and here the you is plural, the whole nation in view, if you or subsequent generations turn aside or walk in disobedience or uh, do not follow my commands, and then very specifically, if you follow after other gods, if you serve and worship those other gods, the gods you, Solomon, have just said are not worth comparing to me, the one true God, your God. If you follow after those other gods, I'm going to do these three things. I'm going to banish you from the land. The land I promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, the land in which I've settled you, each under his vine, each under his fig tree, I'm going to banish you from the land. That's first. Second, I'm going to make this beautiful house, this temple you've built me, I'm going to make it into a pile of rubble a heap of ruins. It is going to be something of a tourist attraction. People are going to walk by and they're going to point to that pile of rocks and say, remember what that used to be? What happened here? I'm going to banish you from the land. I'm going to turn this house into a pile of rubble. And and third, I'm going to have the world know why this happened to you. Your international reputation as a nation loved by, cared for by, given victory by the Lord God, your reputation will be tarnished. And then we hear this and we recall the very words spoken by Moses as a warning from God to a previous generation before they entered the land. If you do not follow the Lord with your whole heart, The Lord will bring you and your king whom you have set over you to a nation neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve 
other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. People are going to laugh at you. That's in Deuteronomy 28. Solomon, in his prayer to God, now hears God say those same words back to him again. Now, I hope you noticed we're in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and I hope some of you remember that this sounds an awful lot like 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9 is a, sermon, is a text on which I preached January of 2021, not that long ago. But there are significant differences between 1 Kings 9 and 2 Chronicles 7 that are especially to the point for us today. Both the letters or the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles are both histories of the nation of Israel. They're written, though, from different perspectives and to slightly different audiences. The books of Kings were written to a nation in exile, whereas the books of Chronicles were written to the nation returning home from exile. In other words, people who were not in the land and people who now were back in the land. So, for example, in First Chronicles chapter uh, in First Chronicles chapter nine, we're given a genealogy of the returned exiles, all of their names and family lines. In the last verse of Second Chronicles, we're told of the proclamation of Cyrus, king of Persia, who gave the remnant of Judah permission to return back to the land, and we trust, obviously, that they did. And so, it's important because. Of the second and the most obvious distinction or difference between 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles 7 is the insertion of the Lord's speech in verses 13 and 14 in Chronicles. Let me try that again. I don't want to lose you here because this is exactly where everything pivots. 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, both histories of the nation of Israel. Kings written to the people in exile, Chronicles written to the people returning from exile. As they've returned home, back to the land, we're told this story of God speaking to his people and saying, in addition to the words you heard in 1 Kings chapter 9, We have these two verses, 13 and 14. 13 says, When I shut up the heavens so there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people then who are called by my name humble themselves and so on. 13 and 14 are not found in Kings, 1 Kings 9. Now why does that matter? Think of it this way. The original speech, the original speech from the Lord to Solomon was intended as a warning with respect to the future. It was a warning to Solomon and subsequent kings that if they abandoned the Lord, they worshipped other gods, they would be taken from the land. By the time the letter of kings gets to people who are outside of the land, it helps them understand why they're outside of the land. 
This is the Lord keeping his promises. He told them, you go after other gods, I'm taking you out of the land. So 1 Kings 9 serves as an explanation of how they landed in exile. But now 2 Chronicles helps both to explain how they landed in exile, but why the Lord is restoring them or has just restored them. You see, 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7 serves as an opportunity to give solemn thanks to the Lord for his loving restoration of his people. It's also, of course, a, subsequent war- a warning to subsequent generations of what the Lord has done, what he could and will do to his people who forsake him. So back in Solomon's day, there were these two paths in front of him. The nation took the wrong path. The Lord punished them for it. But now, in response to their prayers and their pleas and in keeping of, with his promises, the Lord is bringing them back. We might think, well, they've learned their lesson. And some of them clearly do. But it doesn't last. It reminds you of the story of Noah coming out of the ark. The Lord had wiped away all wickedness and all evil. And we think, well, he's starting over. This is going to be great. And it doesn't last long. Here, too, we think the people of God have learned their lesson. They are to serve the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. And what would that mean? It would mean, among other things, that they would recognize that this covenant God who wanted to live among them in his temple had come to live among them in his son. That Jesus is the Messiah. And with hearts still inclined to abandon the Lord, it will be not that much longer, at least in the course of human history, when they will crucify the Messiah. And we know Jesus came as the best and the last son of David, the perfectly sinless son of God, perfectly obedient, keeping every commandment and statute and rule and fulfilling all of the demands of God's covenant, who should have received every blessing of God promised as a reward for covenant keeping and instead received the curses of the covenant because he took on himself our disobedience and the disobedience of all of God's people. So he went to the cross. The perfectly obedient, sinless, covenant, commandment keeping, Lord Jesus Christ took on himself every covenant curse that we undeservedly might receive in him every covenant blessing. Well, with all that in the background, then let's look in the second place, and I promise more briefly, at the if clause. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, if, if they do all these things, Well, the first and the foremost, the greatest, the most important question that helps us understand this text properly is this. Who are my people? Those called by my name. Very clearly, the answer in 2 Chronicles 7 is they are the nation of Israel. 
the Lord has chosen Abraham to be the father of a great nation. He said to him, and repeated this over and over again, I am your God, I will be your God, you will be my people. And he puts his name on them as his way of identifying them as his own. And with that, of course, comes all the protections and the privileges of being the people of God. And I could multiply the examples of Old Testament Scripture passages that tell us the nation of Israel bears the Lord's name or that God has placed his stamp of ownership on them. But hear just one verse or one passage and you hear it almost every Sunday by design. Number six, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons Say, once you get into the land and once all this is established and once the whole thing is going, the priests are to say, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord, Yahweh, bless you and keep you. Yahweh, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord, turn his face toward you and give you peace. Now, I know you hear that all the time, but listen to what the Lord says immediately after that. So shall they, that is, the priests, put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So every Sunday when I offer and pronounce that blessing or benediction on you, On God's behalf, I am reminding you of your name. I'm naming you again. Naming you that the Lord might bless you. Or you could think of how this sense of divine naming and ownership is fulfilled in the New Testament. Just a week or two ago, we saw this enacted for you in the sacrament of baptism. As I pour water over the head of a baby, whose, by the way, name I announce, I say, I baptize you, name, into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is not just an announcing to you all in case you forgot the name of the baby. It's not an actual naming ceremony, the baby received that name from her parents at birth. But it is an identification with the triune God because he puts his name on that baby. And then, of course, there's the picture we have in Revelation 22 of the new heaven and the new earth and the ultimate expression of the banishment of every curse and the promotion of every blessing No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God, the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Suffice it to say, when the Lord speaks of His people, of those who are called by His name, He is not speaking of the inhabitants of this country or any other country. He's speaking in the Old Testament of the nation of Israel 
and in the New Testament of the Christian church wherever it is found. So on that basis alone, 2 Chronicles 7.14 does not apply to our entire country. And as an aside here, but as an entirely related aside, I know the argument many make that this country is a Christian country because it was founded on Christian principles by Christian people. I also know not everyone agrees with that argument. And in some sense, it really is a debate for the historians who will be able to argue and who do argue about whether or not all the founding fathers, when they spoke of God, meant the self-revealing triune God of the Scriptures. But even if we were to grant that argument, let's say they all did. Let's assume for a moment everyone was a Christian and they were all intending to form a Christian nation. There's still this fatal flaw to the application of 2 Corinthians 7.14 to this country, and here it is. You see, God, the Lord, elected and selected Abraham and his descendants. The Lord God initiated that relationship. He put into effect that covenant relationship with Israel. He wove into that relationship promises of blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And he fulfilled that covenant relationship in Jesus Christ. The one who again bore the curses of the covenant on the cross, who gives gives the blessings of the covenant to his people by virtue of his death and resurrection and through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit onto his new people, the church. And what God the Lord has done with Israel and what he is doing in his son, he has not done and does not do with any other single geopolitical group, including this country. You see, it's all well and good for a country at its founding to be made up of many Christians or to desire to build a Christian nation. And many countries have in the course of human history been established by majority Christian populations with a majority of Christians in positions of power, intending their country to be Christian, even sometimes by force. But those are at the initiative of the citizens. It's the Lord God at his initiative who establishes this unique relationship with Israel. And he has never again, ever again, said of any single geopolitical nation, these are my people and my name is on them. But he does say that about the church, which is being formed of all people groups of every nation under heaven and earth, as we saw last week in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Let me say this just one more way. In Deuteronomy 7, the Lord, through Moses, says to his people, for you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That's what the Lord says of Israel in the Old Testament. And then the Lord says through Peter, the apostle, he says to you 
and to the church. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then listen to what he says here. Once you were not a people. Well, why? Because you, most of you, aren't born Jews. You're Gentiles. You've been grafted in. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The theologian Kim Riddlebarger puts it this way. It is common to hear Christians claim America is a Christian nation. What exactly does that mean? One thing it does not mean is that America has a divinely established national covenant with God similar to God's covenant with Israel. And he goes on to add, we make the mistake when we make a mistake when we assume the promises God makes to his church extend to the nation in which the church is found. And that means the long list of covenantal promises and covenant curses embedded in Deuteronomy and here condensed in 2 Chronicles 7 are for Israel in the days of Solomon, into the days of the exile, and into the days of the return. They are not, this verse is not for any other nation. These promises, these curses, are, for, are fulfilled, rather, in Jesus Christ, who is making a new people from every tribe and tongue and nation under heaven for God. That's the if clause, and then we need to look at, finally, the then clause. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God promised to Abraham and his descendants the land. And that promise was fulfilled by Joshua when he brought them in across the Jordan. Through Joshua, the Lord says, I gave you a land on which you've not labored Cities you've not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards you did not plant. That was part of God's great promise to Abraham. I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to bring you into this land. And it's going to be your land to enjoy and to fill. And in which you'll prosper and have peace. And the promise of the land was at the very heart of God's covenant promises and to uh, end of his curses. In other words, if they were disobedient, God would punish them and his punishment would be expressed through the land. Drought, so no crops. Or disease, so crops that grew up and were eaten uh, or were, uh, would die or were eaten by grasshoppers and locusts. So many of the curses are associated with the land, as are, of course, the blessings. You plant, you'll have this abundant harvest. You'll enjoy good things, you'll have many children, it'll be a great time, life and flourishing and prosperity. 
And so this is what makes the exile as a kind of ultimate punishment. They are taken from their land. Which makes the prayers of God's people in the exile so urgent. And their return and restoration so sweet. Even if they come back to a land that is in shambles. To see that glorious temple of pile of ruins. To have to rebuild the wall. And to repopulate this place. And then along comes Jesus. You see, when Solomon built and dedicated the temple and God comes to him and demonstrates his pleasure in what Solomon had done. And he says, as he fills it, I am choosing to be here in this place. And as we think about the mystery and the miracle of the immense, enormous God of all heaven and earth coming to be locally present with his people on that mountain, in the land, and in that one little place. And we marvel at how that's even possible. We similarly marvel or ought to that the same immense God comes to us in human flesh, in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is by his Spirit building and filling his church, which he calls now his temple. And the promise of land fulfilled in Joshua, bringing them in and seeming to be at great risk in their being removed from it in the exile and slightly restored in their return. That promise of land similarly in our Lord Jesus Christ is fulfilled and expanded, even universalized. Because now his promises and his offer of salvation come not simply to one nation, but to the whole world through all the ages and across all regions and places. And Jesus is no longer simply the descendant of David, the king of the Jews, who reigns over a small patch of contested land in the Middle East. Rather, he's the son of David who reigns over the whole cosmos, over all he has made, and who promises to his people a crowd no one will be able to number, made up of every tribe and tongue and nation, or we could say of every color of every people group. And this crowd to whom are given the promises of salvation in Jesus Christ who fulfills every covenant promise and curse in his death and resurrection, this promise of land comes to us now to say we will have communion and fellowship with our ascended, exalted Lord Jesus Christ. We will be in his immediate presence. We will be free from any threat of curse, and we will enjoy the fullest expression of every blessing he has earned for us, promised and given by his Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to live everlastingly on a new heaven and a renewed earth to the glory of God the Father, who says, you, my people, still sin." And you still are called to confess your sin. And to you, I promise forgiveness. 
And a day will come when you will not sin again. You will only experience every blessing of God in full communion and delight with His Son who has accomplished all this for you in a renewed heaven and earth forever and ever. You keep using that verse. I do not think it means what you think it means. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for your glorious promises to your people of old and come to their fullest expression in Jesus, your Son, now given to us in him by your Spirit. Fill us, Lord, with a desire promptly and fully to confess our sin to you when we sin. To gladly and fully embrace your forgiveness as you hold it out to us in Christ. And thank you for the prospects of life everlasting, free from threat or death or curse or tears. Because of what Jesus has done in his death, in his glorious and powerful resurrection, that we might be with him forevermore on a renewed earth, united with the glorious heavens, and we might serve you with joy and delight forevermore. Receive our thanks, we offer it in Jesus' name, and all God's people say together, amen.